<clears throat> it's about five years ago I worked for a big multinational uh, company uh, with uh, sort of offices in every capital city across the world uh, selling consumer goods. Um, and once a year or so, the president of the whole company would come and uh, visit and check in on the London office where I worked. And it was this big deal. We'd spend like three or four weeks just preparing for this guy's visit, people getting their presentations ready. And as it happened, on the day he arrived, I, I was stood out um, on the curb. I wasn't waiting for him. I was just passing. And his car pulled up. And it was this, I'm not a car person, but it was beautiful. I mean, I, I don't know what it was. I think it was an Aston Martin, but the kind of car that you feel coming before you even see and hear it coming, it sort of rumbles the engine. Just this stunning car pulls up and the door opens and out steps this man in this incredibly expensive suit. And I just said to him, Monsieur le Président, it's a French company, Monsieur le Président, can I just, that is a beautiful car. And he said, uh, What's your name, young man? Chris Whitaker. I work, in, I work in sales on the eighth floor. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, well, Chris, if you work hard, focus, apply yourself, stay late every day, push yourself, next year I'll be able to afford another one. <laughs> All right, it didn't happen. Uh, but it was... It was <laughs> It was one of our favorite jokes around the office because for those of us who have worked in big companies like that, work can feel like that. And actually, it doesn't take much of a dip into social media to sense that there is actually this almost a war around work culture in the West these days, a real sort of us and them, a big anti-capitalism movement, quiet quitting, uh, all of this kind of thing, and people pushing back against these heavy capitalist structures against which a lot of the world of work is built. Some people are nodding, some people are looking bemused. Don't worry, I'll bring you back in. Um, work is a tough thing to talk about. And if I had said to any of you before we played that video, can you guess what some of the things that Proverbs might say about work? I don't think there would be very much overlap between what you would guess Proverbs has to say about work and what we've just heard. So I think you'd probably guess things that are time-honored wisdom from other sources about work, such as, uh, we have the first one on the screen, such as, get a job doing what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Heard that one? How about, people don't leave bad jobs, they leave bad managers. Or, train your people so well that they could leave you, but treat them so well that they don't want to. I believe that was Richard Branson uh, that's attributed to. But instead of these good bits of advice, almost everything that we have heard is about laziness. Warning you not to be a sluggard which is, by the way, just old language for a lazy or idle person. I don't think I've heard the word sluggard outside of the book of Proverbs ever in my life. Now, sure, of course, there is wisdom there in this instruction against laziness, but do they really need to keep going over it again and again and again? Surely there's lots more else to say about work. Here's the thing, though. All of the sayings in Proverbs 
are built upon layer upon layer upon layer of cultural, historical, religious context that the people hearing it at the time of writing probably would have been quite familiar with. But our understanding of work is also built upon layer upon layer upon layer of cultural, religious, uh, political context. And those two contexts are pulling us apart from how Proverbs was written. We are not on the same page as the people that wrote Proverbs. So the meaning can be quite lost on us. So in order to properly get into this and find lessons for ourselves in 2023, we're going to need to familiarise ourselves with some different areas of these contexts. So what we're going to do is we're going to zoom right out from the book of Proverbs, right out even from the Old Testament, look at the whole of Scripture. And there is a thread along the theme of work running throughout Scripture, starting literally page one, Genesis chapter one, running straight through that we can pull out things about attitudes towards work, deep drives towards work. It's not going to talk about jobs that much for reasons that we'll see soon. So first of all, context piece number one. How did ancient Hebrews understand life? So before we get into the Hebrew thinking, our thinking, over the last several thousand years since Proverbs was written, there have been many different philosophies, all of which have done a quite similar thing. So fairly early on, you had Plato, who, who, who coined the term dualism, and he was saying that there is a sacred world and a secular world, and these things are separate, and some of the things you do are sacred, some of the things you do are separate. Uh, are secular, are, are normal. And then, not long after the formation of the church, an offshoot of the church came called Gnosticism, with a silent G, which is really tough to say, and they did something very similar. It's a heretical offshoot of the church. They said that there is a, a, uh, a realm of the sort of the ordinary, the boring, the plain, uh, an inferior realm, and then there is a superior divine realm, and those are separate. Um, and then more recently, a few hundred years ago, the Enlightenment did something very similar and said that life is compartmentalized. So you have work life, you have family life, you have social life, and so on and so on. And we have adopted this way of thinking and these beliefs within our culture. We think about sacred things and secular things. We think about ordinary things being down here being sort of boring and unimportant and just normal life and then what goes on in heaven being heaven being special and eternal we think about having a church life over here and a family life over here and a work life over there and we might be completely different people working for completely different purposes in each of those lives and we think that's okay we don't give it a second thought because it's normal because that's how everyone thinks right so here's the answer to this question. None of that is in the Hebrew Bible. None of it. That is not the, 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 the picture that the Bible paints of life. To be honest, ancient Hebrews probably would have been quite confused about the topic of this sermon. Why are you preaching only about work? Why would you separate that out from everything else within life? Because to, to a Hebrew person, several thousand years before life, it's all spiritual. There's no difference between work life and home life and temple life. We worship God in all of it. 
Yes, worship is in the temple, but also worship is in the kitchen. Worship is in the hearth. Worship is in the fishing boat. Worship is in the field, performing arts, learning, raising family, baking bread. Listen to this from Isaiah 65. This is towards the end of the book of Isaiah. God gives Isaiah a vision of heaven. And this is how God's people will worship him in heaven, from Isaiah 65. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by their Lord, they and their descendants with them. Even heaven's worship contains work. To the Hebrew people, at the time of Proverbs, every part of life is worship, and every part of life is work. It's all spiritual. It's all one. So context number two, we don't live in ancient Hebrew times. We live within the church. So how did the early church think about life? All of these same questions. Well, Question number two is a short section because it's exactly the same. So Colossians 3.17 says this. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. That word do there, in Greek it's poieo, and it's just as a wide usable verb in Greek as it is in English. So to do can mean all sorts of things in our language. It's the same in Greek. It can also mean to work. So let me offer you another translation. Whatever your work may be, whether you speak or write or do manual labor, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We're not going to be effective disciples of Jesus if we have our church life over here and our work life over there and we're not allowing ourselves to be discipled over there just as much as we are over here. Another translation option, everything you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So if we can go to the next slide... It's all spiritual. Okay, context number three. This is an easy one. Um, The meaning of life, which we're just going to quickly solve. Okay, so the third thing that is helpful for us to understand is what the Bible says about why we're here. So, Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. We are made in God's image. And the image that that's referring to is what we've just seen in the previous 25 verses, the first 25 in Scripture, is God's image as the creator of the world. 
So if we are in his image, if that's why we're here and how he's made us, it means that in the blueprint for humanity, he has built us, he's built into us the engineering prowess that form the mountains, the artistry that we see in the galaxies, the, the, the maths that's built into the physical laws of the universe, the loving parenthood that cares for the tiniest detail, and the big picture thinking that put it all into solar systems moving around together, not to mention the awesome creativity that thought of it all in the first place. That's in our DNA because we're made in the image of the person who works like that. And most of all, we are in the image of a God who works hard, who enjoys his work, and that desire is in our blueprint too. So the other thing that Genesis 1 tells us about our purpose is these tricky words here rule and subdue God instructs humans to rule over the earth and subdue it we can't get away from the fact that these words have been interpreted over time in really problematic ways because we might feel uncomfortable reading them particularly that word subdue now, in a few months' time, we are going to do a whole sermon series on the first three chapters of Genesis. Um, so we are going to get deeply into that and how we can interpret that in ways that are not problematic. I don't have time to break down all the complexity there, so I'm going to do the short version here. Subdue can mean an aggressive pressing down of something, but it can also mean to bring chaos out of order. So it's a word that you might use to describe taming a wild animal or, or tidying up a wild, overgrown garden, bringing chaos, sorry, bringing order out of chaos. That was the wrong one to get in the wrong order, wasn't it? So the word rule is a much more straightforward word to translate, but what we need to recognize is who is telling us to rule? God himself, the ruler, the ultimate ruler, is asking us to rule under him and with him. We are created to be partners with God, to work together with him, using all the creativity or engineering or artistry, parental care, maths, detailed focus, big picture thinking, and use it in this world that we are in. This, this sometimes wild, sometimes untamed, unfair world, and bring a sense of order into it. And order in which God's plan is what happens. So, so, so I got all of those words in the wrong order there. I'm doing it all. <laughs> so God's plan is to bring that order into this world and fill this world with the love and the glory of God, the true sense of order as God envisioned it when he created it. There's a name for this plan that you're probably really familiar with. Jesus coined it. It's called the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. So why are we here? We're here to work together with God and build and rule the kingdom in a wild world. So the final thing that it's helpful for us to understand is who Proverbs was written for. So if you were here for my sermon at the beginning of this series, you might remember that Proverbs is like an anthology of wisdom. 
is probably recorded over a number of generations. So most of it is attributed to King Solomon, but it's also probable that some of it... Um, so some of it would have been exactly what Solomon said, and some of it is things that were said by later generations that they recognized as being in the style of Solomon's wisdom, so put it in his words, which was a really common way of writing literature at the time. But almost all of the way that the wisdom is presented is in the style of a father teaching his son how to be wise. In fact, to be more specific, a king teaching his son how to be wise. A king teaching the future king how to be wise and rule wisely. So the original audience intended for Proverbs is is a young man who will rule someday. It's a leader's training manual, if you like. And because it's written for princes, Proverbs actually doesn't contain all that much advice for certain aspects of life. So it doesn't have great advice for how to live well in poverty, for example, but it teaches you a lot about how to manage wealth well. It doesn't teach you much about being powerless, but it has a lot to say about how to wield power wisely and justly. It only says a little about how to follow, but it says a lot about how to lead. And now that I've told you that, the temptation is to dial out from Proverbs, to say, well, if, it, if it's not written for me, what can I get from it? How, how can it be relevant for my life? I'm, I'm, not, I'm not rich. I'm not in any sort of significant leadership. I'm, I'm definitely not a prince. Well, first of all, the book's in the canon of Scripture, so there must be value for us to find. But more importantly, let's think about this in the light of what we just talked about in Genesis. We are made in God's image for the purpose of ruling. You are created to be a ruler. So the book of Proverbs, teaching a trainee ruler how to do well, is for all of us because we all are going to rule. So no matter what you do to earn money or not earn money, whatever level you're at, you may be the boss of the company, you may be on minimum wage, you may be feeling hopeless because you are unemployed and desperately seeking, you might be a stay-at-home parent who hasn't slept in days because your toddler just won't listen to you, but you are a ruler, a partner with God on a mission to work with him to bring the kingdom into this wild, untamed world. So the advice in here for trainee rulers is for us. So now we know three things. One, all life is spiritual, including and especially work. Two, God has put us here to rule and build his kingdom. And three, Proverbs teaches us how to rule well. I'm going to bring us into a conclusion by asking the question again that I started with. Why does Proverbs focus so much on not being lazy? And I think the answer lies within how we think about our time. Because rulers, rich people, CEOs, kings, don't tend to think about time in terms of earning and salary and and clocking hours. Quite, Quite often they think about in terms of investment. So I want you to think about your time, your work, your energy in terms of investment. 
See, if we're here to help build a kingdom, and at the same time, every part of our life is spiritual, family, leisure, work, it's all intertwined, that means that everything we do is an investment into God's kingdom, not just what we do when we're in this building. So some things I do are good investments, loving people well, creating beauty, pursuing an agenda of peace and reconciliation in the office, manufacturing quality ethical products, teaching my children how to be kind, improving my mind by learning well, resting intentionally, good investments into the kingdom. But even when I'm not making good investments, I'm still making investments, they're just bad ones. So there are are the obvious bad investments. You can probably think of a few of your own. Prioritising profit over people, trashing the world's resources, belittling people at the office so I can climb the ladder myself. But then there are other bad investments that we might not realise are bad investments. And, And that's what Proverbs is getting at. Being lazy. Letting someone else pick up the slack for you. Making excuses. Not making the most of the time that God has given you to build the kingdom, to build your part of it. Because if all of life is one thing, then slacking off is just bad investment, right? Please don't hear what I'm not saying, by the way. I am absolutely not saying that we shouldn't be taking time to rest. Scripture is very clear that intentional rest is not only valuable, but it's it's critical. In fact, it's mandatory. But Proverbs here is painting a picture of someone who doesn't put any effort into building the kingdom, whether that be in the workplace, the home, any other place you find yourself. And that is not conducting oneself as the kind of ruler that God has appointed them to be. How is your life an investment into God's kingdom? Now, some of you might find it really easy to to think about how your life is an investment. You might work in a way that that has a a physical output that is positive and and, and is bringing God's kingdom in a positive way. For some of you, it might be more tricky. You might not be able to so clearly discern what it is about what you do Monday to Friday or Monday to Sunday because it's all together. That is building God's kingdom. But you absolutely have opportunities in every day of your life to build part of God's kingdom through the workplace that you find yourself in. About 12 years ago, I was training to be a supermarket manager in a really affluent area of London. And I I was fairly new there. I didn't really have any authority. And I was stood in the warehouse with my clipboard, checking some stock and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, the warehouse got really busy around me with all of my colleagues. And uh, I thought, what what is going on? It's like the shop floor had emptied from all of the staff except the ones that were stuck behind checkouts. And I said to to one of the team members, what's going on? And he was just really casually, oh, Mrs. Montgomery's in. (laughs) Who's Mrs. Montgomery? And he sort of took me to the, the, this, like, the, the little glass porthole at the, at the warehouse door. We peered through it. And there was this old lady in her 80s walking along. She's wearing a mustard, long mustard-colored overcoat with a, a tartan neckerchief. She always wore the exact same thing, walking up and down the aisles. And there was not a single staff member anywhere near her. And I said to him, what, what's going on with this old lady? He said, all right, go and find out. Just, just go out on the shop floor. 
Within about a minute, Mrs. Montgomery had found me because she came into the store to look for staff members to yell at and be unpleasant to. So this is, this is the kind of thing she would do. She would walk in, she would have a look around, for not for products that she wanted to buy, but just for a product that wasn't available on the shelves, and then would walk a few aisles over, find a member of staff and say, could you show me how to find the specific name of product? And they say, yes, of course, let me show you, ma'am. Walk a couple of aisles over. Oh, I'm so sorry, we're out of stock at the moment. At which point she would just open up, yelling at them, I've come here especially for this, I can't believe you would run such a terrible... And just give you the absolute hairdryer treatment. And it was horrible. My, my colleague that, that pointed her out to me immediately could name five people that she'd made cry in the previous two weeks. And so everybody left the shop floor when Mrs Montgomery came in, but she came in about five times a week. And I stood there in the warehouse with my colleague, hiding from the old lady that I was scared of, um, and was thinking, <laughs> wanting to hide away, wanting to not invest, feeling fairly self-righteous that I didn't deserve that kind of treatment. But then suddenly realizing that in these words of Proverbs, that, that was me taking the temptation to be a sluggard, not putting myself out there in a way to try and make the world just a little bit better. And then my mind turned a little further and said, what if, what if God is involved in this situation right here? What, what would it look like then? And so I said, okay, God, well, if, if we're going to if we're going to go for it, then you've got to protect me on this one. So I went out to the old lady, and she shouted at me about some honey, and then went away. Um, and, I, and, I, and I prayed, and I said, God, how can we invest in this lady? And I just felt God say, be kind to her. No one's ever kind. And so when she came in the next day, Instead of waiting for her to come and find me or find one of my colleagues and go through this usual process, I went straight up to her. I gave her a huge smile. Mrs. Montgomery, it's so good to see you. We've got that honey in that you look for. Would you like me to go and get one for you? No, that's absolutely fine. I'm really happy that you're here with us today. If you need me for anything, I will be around the shop floor. Just big smiles the whole time. And suddenly this beaming smile came over her face that nobody working in the shop had seen for years. She had entered into this cycle of the only way that she could get any kind of attention was to go and yell at people in a shop because she didn't have anyone else in her life that gave her any kind of positive attention. And my colleagues started to notice this and they said, that's how we get her to stop being mean to us. They weren't investing in the kingdom, they just wanted her to stop yelling, but they all came and started being really nice and pleasant to this lady too. And actually, she started to get lots of positive attention and she became our nicest customer we'd still see her five times a week but she became an absolute delight every time she came in big smiles to every member of the staff she'd even notice new members of staff and come and welcome them to the team now I don't share that story to show you what a great management decision I made but God interrupted me when I was tempted to be a sluggard and said this right now is an opportunity to invest in building just a tiny little bit of the kingdom to turn around somebody's life from glumness and anger to a little bit of happiness. So my challenge for you today to think about during the day tomorrow, as most of you, sorry for those of you that do have to work, but most of you take a day of well-earned rest, 
How is your life an investment into God's kingdom? Are you just making investments during church time? Or is your whole life, including what you do Monday to Friday, an investment in God's kingdom too? Amen.